0: Good morning. morning. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, it is a beautiful day to be gathering together as a church family. Well, we are starting a new series on the book of Malachi. And I know Malachi is probably all of your favorite books of the Bible. So I know when you're thinking of what is the book that I know best you're probably thinking Malachi. I wonder if I asked you, how much do you know about the book of Malachi? Uh, how much you could say? Well, it's just a short book, and it's the last book in the Old Testament. And Malachi was the last prophet before John the Baptist. And after he wrote his book, there were 400 years of silence from the end of Malachi until the beginning of Matthew, where we have the account of Jesus being born. But before we look at the book, I did want to give you a little bit of background as to what's going on in the nation of Israel. Because whenever we, we jump, you know, we're, we were in the parables from Matthew 13. Now we're, we're rewinding, you know, 400 years and jumping right in. I want to give you just a little bit of the context. Now we'll go back into the history a little bit later, but right now I just want to go back a few hundred years. So if you ever heard King David... <coughs> He had a son named Solomon. And Solomon married a lot of wives. And a lot of those wives were foreign wives. A lot of those foreign wives worshipped foreign gods. And that. Those marriages led to Solomon eventually worshiping false gods and allowing idolatry to come into the nation of Israel. And because of that, God promised that he was going to punish the nation of Israel, but he was going to wait until after Solomon died out of respect for his father, David. So after Solomon died, the nation split into two. And there was a northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, in the northern kingdom, all the kings were bad. They all worshipped false idols. And so God allowed the Assyrians to come in. If you can look at the next slide, we see the Assyrians came in. And they conquered the northern territory. And so the southern kingdom, Judah, had good kings and bad kings. And as they were going about, eventually, sometime around the 560s, the nation of Babylon began attacking. If you can go to the next slide, we have Babylon here, and they became, began attacking Israel and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem held on for a little bit, but in in a couple different instances, they started taking people from Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. And finally, in, in 586, Jerusalem fell. And the temple was destroyed, and the walls were destroyed, and the people were sent into exile in Babylon. But God had a plan. Now, many of you know Jeremiah 29, 11. Maybe it was your favorite verse. It's a verse that has brought a lot of meaning to you. But the context is actually when the nation of Israel is in Babylon. And this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon. So so God says for 70 years, you're going to be in exile. You're going to be slaves. You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be out of your promised land. He said, but after those seven years, I will come to you and will fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. God was promising to bring them back out of Babylon and to Jerusalem. Now we often read this verse with our American lens saying God's going to prosper us and not harm us. God's going to cause all these good things to happen to us. But when God made this promise, he said, look, you're going to go through hard times for 70 years, but you know, you're still my nation. You're still the nation that I love. And so I have plans for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then he talks about what will happen 70 years from now. He says, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And that's a consistent message throughout the scriptures that God hears us when we seek him. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place in which I carried you into exile. So in your mind, if you're thinking, okay, so they're in Babylon now, fast forward 70 years, fast forward 69 years. In 539, Persia conquered Babylon. And here we see their area that they had. And after they conquered Babylon, God had this king. And in 538, 70 years after the captivity had begun, just as God prophesied, King Cyrus decreed that the Israelites could go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their country. And they went back in three different ways, waves of people. Now, here's how you remember it. The first wave was was led by Zerubbabel. And you're like, how do I remember the first guy to take the people back to Israel? It's really simple. Zerubbabel led them to rebuild the rubbabel. Okay? (laughs) So... You're going to always remember that now, like how, who came back to build back the temple? It was the rubble to rebuild the rubble. So he led that first group. And then about 80 years later, then we have Ezra who led a second group and Ezra led this revival of a spiritual revival, dedicating the temple, all these things. And then about 13 years after Ezra, then we have Nehemiah and he led them back to rebuild the walls of the city and the gates. And so now they're, they're back in Israel, and then we come to Malachi. Now Malachi happens about a hundred years after they came back to Israel. Now if you put yourself in the place of the Israelites, there's probably high hopes, right? You've returned. God had plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you. You've, you've gone back to Israel. Not only that, you, you've repented of the sins of, of adult, idolatry that you've had in the past. You, you're no longer worshiping false gods. Maybe you even memorized Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. 11. Now, there was no chapter and verses, but, but you had memorized it. I know the plan's to prosper you, and you were thinking God has a, a plan for our nation. God has this plan to, to bring prosperity to our nation. I think as Americans, we struggle with this same thought line. We have so many blessings living here in this country and it's easy for us to expect God to give us comfort and, a, and an easy life. And like the Israelites, when hard times come, we find ourselves questioning God, wondering why God isn't giving us the things we thought He was going to give us, why our prosperity is different than what we planned, why we're experiencing hard times if, if we truly are God's people. See, the Israelites' hope for their nation was, was not fully realized. The temple of Solomon was just a, a shadow of what it used to be. When, te- when Solomon built the temple, it was glorious and beautiful. God's glory had descended on the, the The altar was lit by fire from heaven. God's Shekinah glory was in the Holy of Holies. They had the Ark of the Covenant there, and now it was smaller. There was no Ark, and it wasn't what they expected. The nation of Israel was not as prosperous as they thought it would be. They still struggled with economic hardships, droughts, disparity between the rich and the poor, opposition from foreign nations. Persia was technically still in control over them. So there was no Davidic king, even though they had this new freedom and there was spiritual destitution. And that led them to be disillusioned by God. And that's where the book of Malachi comes in. God's going to confront their attitudes, their apathy, their frustration, their disillusionment, and their sin. And God is going to confront them and say, look, this is where you're at. I'm going to bring a Messiah, but you're not following me. He's going to do that through six dialogues, six speeches, so to say. So when you read the book of Malachi, as you're reading through it, it's broken up into these six speeches. So any guess how many sermons we're going to do on Malachi? Actually, seven. Sorry, that was a trick question. Um, Because after the six speeches, God is going to give a conclusion. He's going to give closing remarks. He's going to say, this is the plan going forward now as you read the book you're going to notice there's just a lot of questions in fact there's 23 questions in the first three chapters alone God is questioning the nation of Israel the nation of Israel is questioning God and God is answering but the end God makes a declaration of a promised messiah and 400 years later Jesus would be born As I met with a few of the elders and we mapped out this series, we landed on Malachi 3, 7 as the theme verse. And this is what it says. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. This is a consistent theme throughout the Old Testament. Return to me and I will return to you. In fact, it's in the New Testament too. James 4 says, draw near to me says the Lord, and I will draw near to you. Why did we choose the book of Malachi? You're thinking, okay, Phil, this is a random choice. Well, one of the reasons is my goal, if the Lord allows me, is to be here for 30 years, and I mapped out how to preach through the entire Bible in 30 years. So you're going to get every book in the next 30 years. I don't know how many of you will still be with us, but I hope a lot of you, and that's the plan. And as we were mapping it out, I thought Malachi is a good lead into Christmas. Because as you're thinking about it, you know, here, everything's ending, and then there's this silence. And What happens in the silence? Where is God in the midst of that? And we're actually going to look at that, and then we're going to see how at just the right time, Jesus was born. So we're excited as we head into Christmas. We didn't just pick this because it leads well into Christmas. We picked this because maybe some of you are struggling with some of the same emotions that the people in Malachi were struggling with. Maybe you feel disillusioned by God. Because of the difficulties in your life right now, maybe you've lost a loved one. Maybe you've had a bad health diagnosis. Maybe you're going through financial struggles, and in the midst of that, you find yourself questioning God and asking God, if you are really good, why would you allow this to happen? Because of difficulties, we all find ourselves in those moments But maybe you're here today and you've walked completely away from the Lord. In fact, when you walked through the doors of this church, you weren't really sure why you were here. You walked here saying, God, I don't know if you have anything left for me. I don't even know why I'm going there. See, I believe that God has something to say to you today. I believe he has something to say to me today. No matter if you're at a place in your life where you feel really close to the Lord... Or a place in your life where you feel really far away. God begins this discourse by saying, I love you. I've always loved you. And that's a message, no matter where we're at in our life, we need to hear. He may also be saying to you, return to me, and I will return to you. Come to me, and I will return to you. Let's pray. God, You are so good and so gracious to us. Lord, maybe there are those in this room that are in the same place as the people of Israel. They feel disillusioned by You. They feel like they thought You had one plan for their life, and yet their life has turned out different than what they expected. Maybe they're angry with You. Maybe they're frustrated with You. Lord, I pray that in this series that You'll speak to their hearts, that they'll see who You are, See that you love them, that you care for them, and you're calling them to return to you, calling them back to relationship. Speak through your word, in your name we pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned, there's these six speeches, and each of the speeches follow the same pattern. First, there's a declarative statement that is made, then there's an objection made by the nation of Israel, and then God answers. Let's read the first one, Malachi 1, 2, 5. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's the declarative statement. Israel objects, but you ask, how have you loved us? And here's God's answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert of jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land as a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. In the famous play, Fiddler on the Roof, and actually Sandy was the fiddler on the roof from uh, this play in a Jewish synagogue, random thing, but there's this scene with Tevyeh, uh, who's the main character, and Goldie. And, and as, the, as the play goes out, uh, their daughter, and, and there's all these different things, but wants to marry the love of her life. But, but that's not tradition. And tradition, the, the dad and the mom arrange the marriage for the kids. And so they're going through this, and they realize that they've been married for 25 years. And so, so Tevya asked Goldie, Do you love me? Have you ever seen it? It's a, it's, a, it's a musical, if you haven't figured that out yet. But anyways, and, and so they have this dialogue. And she responds, look, for 25 years, I've, I've washed your clothes, cooked your meals, cleaned your house, given you children, milked the cow. After 25 years, why talk about love right now? they ask her again, do you love me? And, then, and it goes on, and they have this long dialogue. And eventually she says, for 25 years, I've lived with him, fought with him, starved with him. For 25 years, my bed is his. If that's not love, what is? And they says, but then do you love me? And she says, I suppose I do. And he says, I suppose I love you too. It doesn't change a thing, but even so, after 25 years, it's nice to know. But as we think about that dialogue, essentially what Israel is doing in Malachi is saying to God, do you love me? Look, you promised this stuff, and what we're experiencing doesn't seem to be what we thought you promised. Do you love me? And God is going to essentially say, for for 2,000 years, I have demonstrated my love. I love you. In fact, he begins this book with this statement. I have always loved you, says the Lord. Now, this is in the perfect tense, so, when we read that in the English, it's in the past tense. But in the perfect tense, it's something that is both completed and will continue. So, essentially, what God is saying is I have loved you. I will always love you. My love is constant. 32 times in the Hebrew, this word love is used. And it's most commonly referred to God's covenantal love, God's faithfulness as seen throughout the history of Israel. If we rewind back 1,800 years, so the first time we rewinded, we went a couple hundred years, now we're going to go back about 1,800 years to the birth of the nation with Abraham. Abraham was 75 years old when God chose to call him to leave his country and his family and go to the promised land. He wrote this in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families of earth will be blessed by you. Now, I want to take a a moment as an aside. Right now, you know, what's going on in Israel. A few weeks ago, Hamas, a radical Islam group, attacked and killed over 1,400 Israelis. And right now there's a war going on there. As we see the war, you know, images of revelation and all those things flood our mind But I do believe that one of the reasons why America has been such a prosperous nation all these years is because we've blessed Israel and God has blessed us, I think, as part of that. And so as as people, we recognize the, the the hardship of war, and you watch the images, it's heart, heartbreaking. But at the same time, we say, okay, God still has a plan for Israel, and God still has a purpose, and God still has chosen Israel. And so as we think through and evaluate what's going on, we have to have that in the back of our minds, that God still has a purpose for this nation. And so God made these promises to to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he affirmed them in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. But there was this problem. Abraham's wife was barren. She could not have kids. Not only was she barren, but she was old. So she couldn't have kids, and she was past the age of having kids. And so he's going, how are you going to make me into a great nation when my wife can't even have kids? I don't know if you knew this, God, but that's kind of part of like having descendants is, you know, you need descendants. And so when Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old, God blessed them with a son named Isaac. And God affirmed the covenant of Abraham with Isaac. And Isaac had twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau the older and Jacob the younger. But God's covenantal promise would go through the line of Jacob. Jacob was later renamed by God. His name was now Israel. And God affirmed the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, which later became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons named Joseph was hated. He was a favorite of the kid, and he was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, and God used that to provide for the nation of Israel to get the family out of a place where there's tremendous famine and put them safely in Egypt. They were in Egypt and God promised that 400 years would pass and then there would be this king who didn't remember Joseph. And the Israelites would be enslaved and mistreated. And God brought up Moses to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And then throughout the history, God gave them the Ten Commandments so they knew how to worship them. God gave them the feasts and festivals to remember His goodness through those years. God expanded the kingdom over David and blessed it. And then expanded even more during Solomon's reign and gave them the temple to worship. But sin and idolatry led to their exile. And then God's faithfulness led to their return. And through it all, God loved them. Now the crazy thing about God's covenantal love was it wasn't dependent on Israel. God didn't re- revoke His covenant because of their unfaithfulness. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7 it says this, <clears throat> the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than all the other nations. For you, the smallest of all nations, it was just Abraham and Sarah. That's all it was, two people. Rather, it simply, it was simply that the Lord loves you. That truth is so profound. We can't ever lose sight of that truth. God chose the nation of Israel, out of his love, not because of anything they do. And he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. That is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from your slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. <coughs> he is the faithful God who does what? Keeps his covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes his Unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. But he does not hesitate to punish and destroy those who reject him. Therefore, you must obey all these commands, decrees, and regulations that I'm giving you today. When we read Deuteronomy, we read these passages, there's something that comes to the surface. Last week, uh, Andy talked about the song, Jesus Paid It All. And we sing, Jesus paid it all, which is all about God's grace. That we don't bring anything to the table, that Jesus paid for all of it. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And that that grace leads to an obligation for us. See, the covenant of God given to the nation of Israel was about a relationship, but that relationship led to requirements. As one commentary put it, in the Old Testament, relationship always precedes requirements. Here's his quote. God did not send Moses down to Egypt with the law already tucked under his cloak. Instead, he miraculously delivered them from the oppression of the Egyptians, protected them from the ten plagues, and supernaturally parted the Red Sea before giving the law. That is, God showed his grace to the generation under the guidance of Moses before making covenantal demands. Likewise, God in Malachi 1-2 reminds the Jews of his grace before reminding them of his law. See, the big idea here is that God loves the nation of Israel, but as he loves them, they are called to respond, but he faithfully loved them, even though they rebelled and worshipped false gods. But as they did that, he called them back to obedience. When he strayed, he disciplined them. When they strayed, he disciplined them and called them back. So here's the declaration. I have loved you, says the Lord. Objection. But how have you loved us? They were in this place where Israel was not what they thought it was going to be. Now, it's easy for us to pick on the Israelites. We do this with everybody in the Bible. You know, when we read how the disciples lacked faith, we go, I can't believe after everything they saw they would lack faith. In the end, we see God do these awesome things in our lives, and then we come to a hard point, and we do the same thing. We can look back at the Israelites and be like, you just saw God... Do all these plagues? And the second you face a hardship, your your back is against the wall of the Red Sea. You're you're freaking out and want to go back to Egypt. How could you do that? But we do the same thing. We find ourselves in hard moments, and we find ourselves questioning God, saying, "God, how have you loved me? Have you seen my life lately?" I lost my job, our finances are a wreck, my mother passed away, my health is failing, my marriage... Pick any number of things. We always have lots of complaints we can bring to God. You can pick anything. And we find ourselves in that same place as the Israelites. We say, God, how have you loved me? And that's what the Israelites say. How have you loved us? And here's God's answer. Was not Esau's brother... Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, "Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert of jackals." And you're like, that's kind of a weird response. God could have responded in any way of how he loved the nation of Israel. He could have gone back and showed how he returned them from exile, how he provided in the building of the temple, how he protected them when they rebuilt the walls. He could have looked back further to his saving them from Egypt. But he chooses to highlight the choice of Jacob over Esau. Now, at first glance, this seems kind of weird. So let's rewind back to Genesis 25 and see this. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. He was struggling with; they were struggling with barrenness, the same way that Abraham and Sarah had. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. woohoo That's great. The babies jostled at each other. Now this has got to be crazy. This is before, like you know, they had the uh, what's the thing where they put the jelly on your belly and look at it. Thank you. I just remember jelly on the belly. That's how you always remember it. They didn't have any of that. They didn't listen to the heartbeats and stuff. So she's there and, you know, she's like, did I eat Mexican last night? What's going on? My, my tummy's rumbling. Everything's going bad, you know, and, and why is this happening to me? So she goes before the Lord to say, why is all this stuff going on? This is the Lord's response in the next verse. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. See, in that culture, the firstborn received all the blessing. They got a double portion. And so if there were two kids, the older kid would get two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger one, one one-third. Not only that, they would receive additional blessings for being the firstborn. They'd be prominent. The younger would have to serve the older. They'd, They'd have all the blessings. But then Esau traded his birthright, for a bowl of soup. Because he was hungry. We see this pattern of Esau's wickedness. And, and then later Jacob deceived his father into getting the blessing. And because of that Esau wanted to kill Jacob. And so Jacob had to flee and run away. But the big picture in that whole story is just this. The covenant promise and blessing was given to Jacob. To continue the line of the covenant promise from Abraham and Isaac. Now, this may seem really harsh. In the words of God from Malachi, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I hated. That just seems really harsh. And even when you read the, the story of Genesis, we see God did give some promises and some blessings to Esau. But I think we look at Luke 14, it's helpful to see. Luke 14 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying we have to hate our brothers and sisters? Is Jesus saying we have to hate our wives? That doesn't seem to make sense because later in the scriptures it says, what are husbands supposed to do? Love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. Laying our life down for our wives. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, the issue is priority. Jesus is saying, look, I need to come first. I need to come first. As Andy said last week, Jesus is the greatest treasure that can ever be found. It's more precious than anything else that this world offers. When we choose to follow Christ, we put him above anything else, any other relationship, any other thing that's available. So in this passage of Malachi, really what God is saying is there's a chosen and there's a not chosen. Jacob is chosen. Esau is not chosen. Because Jacob is chosen, here is the path that I'm going to do. Because Esau is not chosen, here is his path. Let's look at Romans to see it a little better. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. Why? In order that God's purpose and election might stand. God has a purpose in what is going on here. Not by works, but by him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it was written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. God chose Jacob because God is holy and sovereign. He's all knowing. He's all powerful. He had a purpose. And yet in our, you know, feeble minds as humans, we say, is that fair? In fact, Paul follows up that verse with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Because that's the question that comes to our mind right away. That doesn't seem fair. And Paul's answer is not at all. See, If God is sovereign and omniscient, and God knows all things, and we only know this small thing, we only know a a little piece, we can only see with these clouded lenses of what's going on, and yet God sees all, then we can trust that He's wise and good. See, God looked at all the people on all the earth, millions and millions of people, and He chose Abraham. He said, I'm choosing you. And then He chose Isaac over His half-brother Ishmael. And he chose Jacob over his brother Esau. And he chose the nation of Israel over all other nations. Not because of anything they had done, but because he's God and he can choose. In Malachi 1, God is demonstrating his love by reassuring the nation of Israel that they are his chosen people with whom he has made a covenant. They are different from all the other nations. He continues in verse 4 and says, Eden may say, though we've been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. And their pride, they say, we're going to rebuild. But the Lord Almighty says, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. God is saying, you will see my protection in the nation of Israel Even in the midst of my sin, and you will see my destruction of the wicked. Because of the sin and pride and wickedness of the nation of Edom, God was going to destroy them. And eventually in A.D. 70, they were wiped out. Edom no longer existed. Now you contrast that to Israel. Whenever whenever Israel sinned and rejected God, they did experience judgment. They did. But that judgment served a different purpose than the judgment of other nations. It was for discipline. God was correcting his people to bring them back to repentance. I have loosely five kids. I have two biological kids and I have three sons from different countries. And uh, when they sin, I don't just go, ah, no big deal. No, I, I say that's wrong. And I discipline them because I say that's wrong. So this is the consequences. And I follow through with those consequences. And the point of the consequences is for them to learn to no longer walk in disobedience, to no longer walk in that sin. So God continues to do this throughout the history of Israel. But then he continues to say, return to me and I will return to to you. Return to me and I will return to you. God's covenantal love for Israel led to loving discipline. And that loving discipline led to repentance. And that repentance led to restoration. And Esau's descendants didn't experience that same thing. Because as they continued to sin, they didn't turn to God and they experienced the wrath of God. In the words of Ray Clendenin, God's choosing Jacob and his descendants meant that he established a permanent relationship with Israel as a whole, in which he would instruct them with truth, train them with righteousness, care for them with compassion, bless them with goodness, and discipline them with severity. Regardless of how often they strayed from him, he would be faithful to them by his grace until his work in them was complete, and all Israel would enjoy the righteousness, peace, and joy that come from knowing God. And God still has that plan for the nation of Israel. But God did not have that same relationship with Edom, Esau's descendants. But you may find yourself going, okay, Phil, that's all really interesting. But I'm not an Israelite either. So how does this apply to my life? Well, I think one helpful uh, way to look at this, as we especially as we read the Old Testament, is to recognize that we're in a different time, we're in a different covenant. And so we have their town, we have the nation of Israel, and God is speaking to the Israelites and talking to them. And so one of the things we need to look at is, what is the difference between our context as Americans living in 2023 over here, and their context back in israel well we have a difference in culture a difference in language a difference in time different situations different covenant and so as you're reading the bible and you look at what's your first step as you read the bible is to determine what is god saying to the nation of israel what is he saying to them he's communicating to them i love you i chose you those are important things the next step is say okay what's the difference between us and them and then what you want to do is look at this principalizing bridge. What what principles can be applied to all Christians that ever lived? So as we answer that, this should be the same whether you're a Christian living in 40 A.D. Or not 40. Yeah, yeah, 40 would work. Uh, 1,000 A.D., 1,500 A.D., or 2,023 A.D. These principles should be the same. And so as we look at these difference, you, you have yourself asking God, how have you loved me? And God, when he answers it, isn't going to talk about the nation of Israel and their blessing because we're not Israelites, but we can see God's love clearly. Romans 5, 8 that was read, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, just like the nation of Israel, there was nothing good in us. God didn't choose us because we did enough good things. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we see God's love in his election. Colossians 1 says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies. That's where we were. We were separated from God. We were aliens. We were, we were enemies. Ephesians 2. We were dead in our sins and our transgressions in which we used to live. We weren't alive. We were dead. Genesis 8. After the flood, God says, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. God says, Says, look, it's not that I choose you because you're good. <laughs> there are people in our society that would say, yeah, people are generally good. You know, Why should everybody go to heaven? Because everybody's good. We're just born. We're, we're, I think everybody's just naturally good. But but God says, no, even every inclination of the heart that you have, the heart is deceptive above all things. We are all naturally selfish. We all naturally pursue the things that, that we want over pursuing God. The problem is that all of us are sinners. So what's the solution? Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We can have hope. We can have peace. We can be thankful even when life is a wreck because we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Next verse. For he chose us in him. When did God choose us? Before the creation of the world. It was not because we did something good or we were inherently good. He chose us to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for what? What did He choose us for? To be adopted into His family. Adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. To the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given in the one whom He loves. He gave us that grace through Christ. So as we look at, at their town and our town and what's the difference, we as believers have covenant promises, but they're a little bit different than that of the nation of Israel. We're not promised a land in Asia, but we are promised a home in heaven. Look at some of these promises. God says, you're precious in my sight. So when we struggle to feel like we don't fit in and we're not wired the same way other people are wired, we know we're created by God, we're precious in the sight. That no matter what we're facing, God watches over us by day and by night. That when we fear things, when we go through hardships, we can recognize that Jesus died in your place so that you can have life because of his death and resurrection. And if you give your sin to God, your sin has been nailed to the cross. It's been paid for. It's been it's been put away. You're no longer under the penalty of sin because of what Christ did. And you are forgiven. And God permanently adopted you into his family and made you a new creation. And now as we walk in that life, he will instruct you in the way you should go. And he'll walk with you even in those dark times because he's your help. And you're deliverer. God is present in all of these things. And God, next one, God will provide everything you need. Now, He might not provide everything you want. But in that provision, we learn that His grace is sufficient for us, no matter what we're going through, and that the Lord is always with you. And He will give you power to serve in His name. And one day, no matter what happens on this earth, if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, He will wipe every tear from your eye and you will spend eternal life with Him. That Those are the promises that we can count on as believers. Those are the covenant promises of our Savior if we go back to Him. So in closing, I want to close with one word. When we look at this, we need to, to get to, okay, how do I apply this specifically to my Context: How do I apply this in my life? So we see how all believers would have applied it. But how do I apply it to my life? I just want to tell you about an invitation. Today, God has given you an invitation to His love. Maybe what you need to hear today is that God loves you. We sang it at the beginning. For God so loved the world that He gave us His one and only Son to save us. Whoever believes in Him will live forever. We sing it loud and excitedly because that is the truth. God loves us and He sent His Son to die for us. It is out of His love. God demonstrates His love that even while we were sinners, even when we turned away from God, He sent His Son to die for us. God loves you. But there's not just this invitation to love. There's this invitation to believe. Maybe you're here today and you've never believed. God so loved the world that He gave His one only Son that whoever believes in Him will live forever. God is inviting you to believe in Him today, to put your faith and trust in Him today. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe that He is God, put your faith and trust in Him, choose to follow Him. If you confess that He is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. God is inviting you to believe and throughout this book, we see an invitation to return. Maybe you're here today or maybe you're watching us online and you've run away from the Lord. You describe yourself as far from Him. You say, one time, yes, I had given my life to God, but, but I, I, I haven't really been given Him any credence. I just kind of walked away. Remember, the theme of this series God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Return to me, and I will return to you. God is calling you to return. In my years of youth ministry and working in church, I've seen plenty of times where people, when they got out of high school, got into college, you know, they had a liberal professor, all these different kind of things, and they just kind of walked away from their faith for a while. Or maybe their grandpa died or someone close to them and they just kind of walked away from their faith. But what I love is when people get to the point, and often they get to a point when something dramatic happens in their life. It's often a tragedy or something that causes them to to reevaluate and they realize, I need to go back to God. And the great thing about that is when they do, God welcomes them with open arms. I love the story of the prodigal son. That The son ran away and, and squandered his wealth and did all the things he thought would bring fulfillment. And he found himself at his lowest moment. Then he comes back, prepares this speech to return to the father, to come back and beg for mercy. And, and when he's far off, the father sees him and runs. The father doesn't sit there and wait. He runs to the son. And he embraces him. And the son tries to go into the speech and the father interrupts in the middle of speech and calls and has all the blessings poured on his son. His ring, his robe, his sandals and throws this banquet because the son that was lost is now found. Jesus today may be inviting you, return to me. And I will return to you. And lastly, an invitation to share. For those of us who have been radically changed by God's love. There's nothing better than to share that love. To tell others, this is why I'm different. This is what God has done in my life. This is why God has changed me. So I want to invite you today to see God's love, to believe in it, to return to it, and to share it with others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that you love us. Lord, so often we're just like the Israelites and. When we go through hardships, we blame You. We get frustrated with You. Maybe even curse You. But for those of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, You always are there with us. And We may try to move far away from You, but You pursue us. And we thank You for that, Lord. And You call us today. Return to Me, and I will return to You. You welcome us into a relationship Revelation 3, it says, you stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, you'll come in, you'll eat with them, you'll restore that relationship which is broken. So Lord, we pray that today anyone here who doesn't know you or who's run from you will return to you, will come to you and experience your grace and your love. God, we thank you for your love. Help us to live in it. In your name we pray. Amen.